0: Welcome to the Fixed Ops Roundtable podcast, featuring Ted Ings and his distinguished guests. Each week, you'll gain valuable insights to level up your game in retail automotives' fixed operations. This episode is brought to you by BG Products, partners beyond products. And now, here's Ted Ings. Welcome back to the 80s at the Fixed Ops Roundtable. It is time for the state of the automotive retail industry. We'd like to welcome back Leonard Belavia, who is the senior partner at Belavia Blatt PC, dealerlaw.com, a great friend of the dealer and the retail community. Len, welcome back to the Fixed Ops Roundtable. Ted, great to be with you as always. Thank you for having me. Len, you are certainly well-known in the industry, and when you speak here at the Roundtable, it gets a lot of attention. And what I'd like to do today, if it's okay, I would like to discuss some of the state franchise laws that are being proposed in different states that pertain both to sales and fixed ops, and I've seen you quoted all over, including in Automotive News, several articles where you've been interviewed, and if you would kind of take us through the lay of the land in regards to that. Sure, I I guess, you know, this comes under the general moniker of
1: we're at a crossroads in the industry. You know, dealers really have to push back and decide what's important to them, what fight they can leave for another day. But I guess the general statement is if dealers do nothing, there's going to be a major revolution in terms of, you know, the, the integrity of the franchise system. So dealers have been mobilized, they've been communicating with their state dealer association officials and 20 groups and so forth. And the state associations have been extraordinarily active in trying to amend the state franchise laws. Keep in mind, every state has a dealer franchise law. They vary in degrees of strength and content. And I think the associations are trying to get together and pick and choose the best dealer protections from each state and make sure that they have a comprehensive tapestry of franchise protections for their dealers. So some states are a little bit further ahead, some are catching up, but I think on the whole, what's on the legislative agenda across the country is really very good for dealers. I think what's happening is dealers are realizing that unless they are proactive, manufacturers are going to take whatever stabs they can to try and you know cut through these protections. And you know, Ted, keep in mind that manufacturers like anybody else will always measure what the other side is doing to figure out, you know, what they can get away with and what they can't. So historically manufacturers have tested. That's why when, you know, you see something happening in the industry, if you're, you know, Volvo did a few things a few years ago about direct sales and Ford is doing now, you know, with EV sales, it's not just for Volvo dealers to pay attention or Ford dealers in that case to pay attention because every manufacturer is observing the pushback, the degree to which dealers will fight if pushed, and if they see that dealers are com- complacent, we can rest assured those programs will cer- certainly crop up with other OEMs. So, state association leaders are aware of this, and they are pretty aggressive at trying to, uh, you know, stall these bills, implement legislation that will give dealers you know, nationwide protection, as though this is a national act, as opposed to 50 different state statutes. So, <clears throat> you know, just to give you an example, Speaking of Volvo and Ford, you know, direct sales, direct sales, you know, terminology is now three or four or five years old, and the important thing is that dealers don't become so complacent because they it's not old news, it's very cutting edge, and dealers have to be careful, make sure that their state statutes provide prohibitions against direct sales with respect to a manufacturer we call a legacy manufacturer, you know, Chrysler, Ford, Toyotas that have an existing framework of dealers. They can't change the rules in the middle of the game and say, well, we're going to direct sale on these models and keep the current uh, models in place going forward. So New York has this already. Many states have prohibitions against direct sales, but those states that don't are now introducing legislation that will provide that protection. We've talked in the past, Ted, about over-the-air updates. That's really on the agenda of many state dealer associations to say to manufacturers, you know, in simplest terms, if you build a car with hardware that enables customers to activate that hardware, you have to do it at the point of sale. You can't, you know, death by a thousand cuts, sell the vehicle with equipment that a customer is paying for, and then ask the customer to pay extra to implement the functionality of that particular software. So, state associations are saying that, you know, you have to either provide that at the beginning when the customer buys the car, or if you do it after the fact, then have the dealer participate in the profitability of that. Because what they're doing is they're emasculating the dealer's markup by providing the vehicle with that capability, but, not, but keeping all of the profit later by charging the customer as though that, customer were the, that buyer was the customer of the manufacturer, which is a fiction. So state associations have been proactive there. Subject near and dear to us that is warranty reimbursement at retail that that's an age old concept now it started in the 80s and more and more state all 50 states now have one form of legislation or other that entitles dealers to get retail for parts and labor but that's even that's changing it's getting very complicated which is as you know why we say you know attorneys should be providing this assistance to dealers and most recently there have been challenges by the automotive manufacturers they have lost Know, pretty much, it is a mainstay now that dealers are entitled to get retail if they apply for it. But now, state association leaders have become savvy to the end runs that manufacturers are trying to do to take some of the teeth out of those statutes. So they're kind of emboldening those statutes by saying that retail means retail, and you can't deuce the margins at the manufacturer level to try and defeat that. So there are things like making sure that labor rates, are, even if the manufacturers reduce the retail time allowed for a certain task, the statutes are saying, you know, it has to be one and a half times to guard against that type of chipping away at the intent of the statute. Uh, Rights of first refusal, you know, this doesn't directly relate to fixed ops, but indirectly it does, because if the sellers can't control who they sell to, it affects everyone, including, you know, the service department. So rights of first refusal are, to simplify it means that if a seller wants to sell to someone he trusts down the street the manufacturer should not be able to come in in the middle of a buy sell and say no we don't want that dealer we want to bring in somebody from out of town who may have their own you know employees and different way of doing business that is not really in the seller's best interest because sellers sometimes want to keep the real estate and they want to know that their tenant is someone they know and trust and not have somebody foisted upon them from far away and, and then you know you have the general day to day you know attempts by the manufacturers to change the terms of the franchise agreement so more and more states now are saying look if if you implement what they call a program manufacturers seem to want to make it seem innocuous this is just a policy change now if it goes to the heart of the relationship then that's considered a modification of the franchise agreement and now statutes more and more are saying you can't do that and if you seek to do that dealers can go into the departments of motor vehicles and get us what's called a stay, put a hold on that until it can be challenged and evaluated. And the burden's on the manufacturer to say that this doesn't materially change the relationship. So, you know, then, of course, you have uh, Scouts and Genesis and these new products that are coming forward, you know, under the guise of a different entity. So when Hyundai says, well, this is not a Hyundai, it's a Genesis, you know, and that's a good example that, you know, dealers weren't happy about it, not many, or if any, fought back. And that's an example. I think if that were to happen today, dealers, I think, are a little bit more aware based on what's going on with EVs and Ford and all of the shots that manufacturers are taking at dealers, I would venture to guess that dealers would probably have stand up if this was just coming on the forefront today and say, wait, can manufacturers do this? Can they introduce a model under a different name and claim it's not part of the existing franchise? So that's something I think dealers are going to be much more suspect about and and state associations will assist. And if I could just make a general observation over, you know, 36 years of doing this, uh, I can't tell you how many dealers have come in. And I'm sure other attorneys that do what I do will attest to this out of you know, 100 dealers that come in and say, you know, this is what's happening at my manuf- by my manufacturer. Attorneys will say, well, it violates the franchise law. You have a legal right to put a stop to it. 99 out of 100 will not do anything. For the understandable reason that, you know, this is your source of income and revenue. So the idea of suing the manufacturer doesn't really appeal to dealers. So manufacturers have gotten away with murder. And I often say, sure, this is, a, this is inappropriate and illegal. What do you want to do about it? Well, nothing. Let me leave it to my 20 group let me leave it to National Dealer Council or my state association. But the problem is they can't do anything about it either because they don't have legal standing. That's a term of art in the you know legal circles. That means that if you have to be the one that's aggrieved, you can't have an alter ego or a representative sue on your behalf. And that has really stymied dealers' abilities and willingness to take of these programs to court to challenge them so what's happening now and i'm really thrilled to see this because this has been i've been on the soapbox for years trying to get associations, state dealer associations to have legal standing on behalf of dealers because what that does it takes installs this degree of anonymity into the process so if 44 dealers in a particular state are calling their association saying, you have to do something about it. Instead of saying, we can't, we don't have standing now state associations. If these type of legislative initiatives succeed, will be able to say, don't worry, we will fight this fight for you. So no one dealer has to feel that they're standing out in the field as a renegade dealer and have to worry about the repercussions or retaliation. So my, my hat's off to Florida, you know, Ted Smith in Florida has taken the bull by the horns and introduced you know, legislation that addresses that specifically. You know, Other states like New Jersey and California have standing provisions in their franchise laws already. My goal, I mean, this is probably on the top of my wish list, is that every single state do the same thing and get standing, associational standing, legislated into law so that these fights can be waged by associations. I mean, it's easy to get them funded through your members. Problem is, it's one thing to have all these great laws on the book, but what what good is it if dealers don't invoke those rights? So this bypasses that whole problem. So I think that states are successful in getting that passed and enacted into law. You're going to see the franchise system and the integrity of it. Really, be preserved for future generations. This has been an Achilles' heel in the life of the franchise dealer because it's one thing to tell them they have an airtight case, but to get them to cross the line to actually file a lawsuit a one in a million shot. So, so these type of initiatives, I think, go to the heart of the franchise system. And kudos to those state dealer associations that are really being progressive about getting these standing statutes on the
0: books. So I didn't realize that was such an issue that was even available. Can I go back to something you mentioned just a little bit earlier? The over-the-air updates, Len, we're hearing a lot more about that here in the fixed ops community. You pointed out very astutely in the last year that the revenue, which is in the billions, in the tens of billions of dollars every year that is going to come from those over-the-air updates, is going to come directly out of the fixed op, the retail, the dealer fixed operations department's Talk to us a little bit about that, because the time to act on that is now, and the awareness is starting to increase, but we're hearing a lot of chatter about over-the-air updates. Yeah, you know, we often get asked,
1: you know, what is is at the top of the priority list for dealers? And aside from the standing issue, which I'm happy to see some progress is being made, is these over-the-air updates. I mean, rather unabashedly, the manufacturers are disclosing that this is a $25 billion per year revenue source for them. And that means that instead of dealers collecting this revenue, manufacturers are taking it out of the pockets of fixed ops departments. And, you know, it's, it's like a slow process. And I don't think uh, dealer principals are aware of the threat of these over-the-air updates. And it's unfair to the consumer. I always get a kick out of, you know, anytime there's an issue about, you know, changing something in the franchise model, the manufacturer seeks refuge in this safe harbor declaration that, well, we're doing this because it's enhanced, it enhances the customer experience. So that's, that's really a crock because if direct sales, for example, enhance the customer experience, I mean, that's an easy one to rebut, right? The customer has to be told, take it or leave it. This is the price. That doesn't enhance the customer experience. If the manufacturer says, well, yes, you do have you know, a heated steering wheel or vibrating seats in your vehicle, and you paid for that, but you can't utilize it until you pay an extra subscription fee after the fact. Well, that's not in the customer interest to charge them twice for the same service or product in a vehicle. You know, all of the things we've been talking about really, you know, we could spend a lot of time explaining why these are not good for consumers, but that's the fallback argument that manufacturers make and dealers are the best advocates for the consumers. And unfortunately, consumers don't have an appreciation for the value of the dealer franchise system as it relates to their own sales experience and service experience. So it's up to, you know, both the dealer and the state legislature and representatives to explain to consumers that choice is important and competition is important, and most of these programs that manufacturers are seeking to, you know, foist upon dealers are not good for consumers. So it's an education process. And the existing franchise fabric is relevant to protecting consumers. Of course, you know, there's always the argument, no, these are all protect, protectionist statutes for dealers. These statutes were put out there to protect consumers as well, because consumers need continuous representation. The integrity of the franchise and system is important to consumers so that when they buy a car, they don't have to search for a dealer because their, wa- their dealer was put out of business by a manufacturer based on some program of the month that they didn't want to subscribe to. So all of these things, you know, are relevant to keeping consumers happy. So whenever you hear a manufacturer say, well, we're doing this to enhance the customer experience, you know, red flags should go up because that's really like a last ditch attempt to
0: justify an unpopular and unhealthy change to the franchise system. And Len, one more thing I'd like to ask you about that you mentioned Let's talk about retail warranty reimbursement because there is probably nothing more pressing that will help the revenue of the dealer if they are aware of both the labor and the parts opportunities on that retail warranty reimbursement. You know, here we are, midway through the second quarter. There's been a lot of changes in our industry, a lot of inflation as well in the last year or two. that's we've heard about in the news. Retail warranty reimbursement, and the fact that it needs to be top of mind for dealers to be looking at what they can do within their states, and to deal with a professional in terms of making sure that you know they get all that they are entitled to, and file that correctly in the appropriate manner.
1: Yeah, you know that that's that's been a pet project of mine since the nineties. You know, I, I started lawsuits against the manufacturers because the, the laws on the books were very vague and obtuse back then. It simply they simply said dealers. Must be paid reasonable rates and markups for warranty work. But there was no definition. So we started that process. That's why, you know, in our, you know on our website, we call ourselves the pioneers of mm-hmm. warranty. I know you're going to be speaking to Ken Lohr yeah. of my mm-hmm. office. I consider him the subject matter expert on retail warranty reimbursement. You know, just to talk about it, t- something topical, you see all of the buy sells that are occurring over the past three years. I mean, record yes. numbers of dealerships are changing hands. The, dealer, the buyers, unwittingly are continuing business as usual in the service department, not realizing that the manufacturers on a buy-sell kicked the warranty reimbursement rate back down to the national rate. So it might be cost plus 40% on parts when the seller at the time of the closing was getting cost plus 85%. Mm-hmm. So buyers don't realize that they have to apply new. Not every manufacturer does that, but most do. When these submissions go in, they're reviewed by factory reps who then have them reviewed by attorneys at the manufacturer. So that's why. And these are governed. They're all governed by state statutes. This is a statutory submission. So when I see, you know, vendors out there who are not lawyers, I liken that to you and I filing our taxes by our neighbor who happens to be good at math but is not a CPA. You're going to have your taxes filed, use a CPA. You're going to seek warranty reimbursement under your state statute. Use an attorney, because there's an attorney on the other side trying very hard to find holes in the submission, Ken Lore will tell you, you know, his, his success rate is 100 percent. Nobody challenges Ken, so manufacturers are savvy to, to his capabilities. So, so that's why, you know, this is something that, especially now, especially now when gross profits are getting reduced, you know, to back to pre-COVID levels. suddenly our phone is ringing regularly because the focus now is shifting to the fixed ops department to say, all right, you know, new car sales had their run, now we're back to business as usual, so we're getting calls from fixed ops saying the dealer, the dealer wants us to increase our revenue and, on warranty and, you know, the amount of money is, is very substantial, It could be, you know, a quarter of a million dollars a year. And when you figure out the math, assuming a five times multiple, valuing your blue sky, you know, that could be well over a million dollars of blue sky value just sitting on the shelf there for the taking if a dealer knows how to do these submissions. And the biggest mistake I'll say, and this is really, this is not a promotional statement. I'll just say it right out. If if you're a fixed ops director or your parts manager is doing this and they could be the brightest and presumably they are to fill those positions, that's not the person or people that should be doing these warranty submissions. A, they don't know the nuances of every manufacturer. They each have their own pain points. B, they could be doing something far more profitable, which is the day-to-day business of running a service department and not be taken off for 40 to 50 hours because that's what it takes to do one of these submissions. Easy, yeah. And if it takes them two to three months of time, because presumably there's still business on a daily basis, then those two to three months cost about $25,000 a month. So you're, you're saving $75,000 by not outsourcing it To what end you're probably going to get a kickback and your productivity at the dealership is not going to be as strong as it should be during those three months because the service or parts director is taking their eye off the day-to-day activity so it's very easy to make the case why these submissions should be outsourced but as you know ted i kind of get up on my soapbox when i talk about retail reimbursement because it has been something i've my firm has focused on for almost 25 years now so don't Just the tip of the day is be aware that at the time of a closing, it's time the next day to focus on how do I build up a a set of repair orders. It will take two to three or four months to do that so that these repair orders are
0: ripe for a resubmission. I just learned that today. So all of our fixed ops friends, if you've been involved recently in a buy-sell, our fixed ops directors who oversee multiple stores and you're now bringing in a new store or two, something to be extremely aware of. Len Bolavia. everybody. He's the senior partner at Bolavia Blatt PC, dealerlaw.com. Great friend of the dealer. Len, if our, if our audience, if our dealers, general managers, fixed ops directors, service directors want to reach out to you and your firm on any of the topics that you discuss today, because you do so much for the dealer. And of course, we are going to have Ken coming up a little bit later in the show. Len, You've got a great website, dealerlaw.com. I think you've got the best one out there. Really We're
1: just getting a little older, you know, I, was, I chose that back when there wasn't as much competition in this space. So I've had it for you know, 30 years. Uh, you know, there are different variations of it I've seen out there, but it helps our clients remember how to reach us. And, and to reach us, it's simply info at dealerlaw.com.
0: That comes right to my email. And hey, everybody, if you want to work, with the best. Len Bolavia is here, great friend of the dealer, great friend of the fixed ops community. Len, on behalf of the roundtable again, once again, thank you for bringing all of these issues top of mind that are affecting profitability and can affect the profitability of our dealer body. Thank you, Ted. I always enjoy watching your, your fixed ops roundtable.
1: I think it's, it's where every dealer, every manager should be focused in on this because some of the ideas that come out of your sessions are absolutely necessary for everyone to understand. So you, you've you got the uh, got the cutting edge program and I'm sure all of, I know my clients appreciate it and anybody in the industry who wants to become the best
0: at what they do should really focus in on your project and best of luck to you. Len, thank you so much. We'll check in with you again a little bit later in the year. Thank you for all you do, Len. Len Belavia, everybody, senior partner at Balavia Blatt, dealerlaw.com, here today with the state of the automotive retail industry, At the fixed stops roundtable. Thank you, Ted.